Brothers, can we learn from history? Can we learn from history? This is a question that has been asked time and time again throughout history. And unfortunately, the most evident answer, if we look into how we are even right now in this nation and in many nations of the world, it seems that the, the answer would be that we can't learn much. In fact, there's a secular philosopher, Hegel, that once has said that the only thing we can learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. But well, even as we consider our recent history, even the ballot that is about to be voted, or a little further back, the wars that we have had in the past centuries, First World War, Second World War, Cold War, even though it seems to be the case that we are very stubborn and slow to learn from our mistakes in history, my question to you now is not only can we learn from history overall, but as Christians, can we learn from history? Or if I want to put it in another way, if there are many that can't learn anything from history, should this be the case for the Christian? Should this be the case? From the Word of God today, even the psalm that we have read already, verses 1 through 8, the answer for us should be pretty evident. Yes, we can learn from history, and we can learn much. This psalm, brothers, is a very precious psalm to me. And it's a very unique psalm in the Scriptures as well. This is a contemplation of Asaph, or if you read in the Hebrew, a masque. A masque. That, that's a, a very broad word that means something from which you can glean wisdom or learning. So that's what the psalm is. This is the longest psalm in the Scriptures. And I'll have the, I guess, the courage to preach from the whole psalm today. Even though we have read from verses 1 through 8, we, go, we will go briefly through the whole psalm. And I want you to pay attention, because today, the Lord God has a lesson from history for you. And we will see in this message that God's lesson for us from history is that we must give ear to His interpretation of history. We must give ear to His instruction. So that we trust in him, so that we remain faithful and we don't backslide. And we will see this message in three simple points based on verses 1 through 8. There is an invitation from verses 1 and 2. There's an instruction from verses 3 and the first half of verse 5. And there's an intent from the second half of verse 5 on until verse 8. An invitation, an instruction, and an intent. God invites us, God instructs us, and God has an intent, a purpose for this instruction. Very well, brothers. Before we, we, we dive into the, the psalm, let me make a few introductory comments about this psalm. This psalm is one of the few psalms in the scripture that uses all throughout, very often, the language of wisdom of the Old Testament, especially the language of wisdom in the book of Proverbs. Now, you find the language of wisdom in many psalms, but the way in which it is set in Psalm 78, I think the only other psalm that would be similar to this would be Psalm 49 and maybe one or other psalm. This is a psalm that is written not so much as a song that you would sing every day. Many of those psalms that we have in Scripture are psalms that would be sung every day or, or, or often by the congregation. This would be a psalm 
which would be sung specially in special celebrations when the people of God would gather together to recall the wonderful works of God and to teach a lesson. That's a sermon in poetry, just like Psalm 49. That's a sermon in poetry. And as we come to this message, as we come to the psalm, many people often for, forget or ignore the superscription of the psalm. But the introduction that we have here, the contemplation of Asaph, and as you get this introduction with the rest of the psalm, even the superscription teaches us something. First of all, this is a psalm that talks about history, about facts of the past. But not only facts. If you read the whole psalm, you will see that it recalls the history of the people of Israel, but not in a chronological way, as if it was telling from Genesis up to uh, later on, uh, uh, the history of Israel from Genesis to Malachi. It's not exactly chronological, but you know what I mean. It's not telling from beginning to end what happened with the people, but it is recalling many events in such a way that is drawing a lesson from us. For us. So even in the superscription, the meditation, the interpretative meditation of Asaph, of the history of Israel, even there we already see that history is not just a bunch of facts to be collected and to be memorized and to be repeated, but there is to be interpreted. And there is such a thing as a right and a wrong interpretation of history. We ourselves, we live in a secular world, in a, in a world that is used to interpret history by the presupposition that there's no such a thing as a God. So there are many theories on how to interpret history. There are theories about history being cyclical. There are theories about history being governed primarily by struggles between classes, between groups of people uh, struggling for power. And there are, among those different theories, just the basic presupposition that God does not work in history. God is ignored. But we know as Christians that this is not true. Therefore, even as we approach the psalm, we approach it differently. This is a meditation on the history of Israel by a believer, by Asaph, for our instruction. And this is why we see in verses 1 and 2 the invitation, the invitation of God. He invites us so that we will hear. That's why this is a text that is proper for example, for a, a call to worship that we have used this morning. Because God is drawing us in. And he says in verses 1 and 2, through the mouth of Asaph, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. First of all, we see here that as wisdom cries out through Asaph, similar to the language of Proverbs there, those teachings, they need to be uncovered. So, from the, from the affirmation that there are things that will be uncovered, that will be open, we understand that they might not be self-evident. There are many facts in history that should be self-evident for us, but because of our fallen condition, we are very slow to learn. So we will see in a moment this, for example, the history of Israel, their rebelliousness, time after time again. It's so obvious, it's so blatant, it's so absurd that we should automatically learn something from that. But we often don't. But look that, pay attention that God deals with us with such a kindness, with such a care. 
He comes to his own people and he says, Give ear, O my people, my people. Even though this is not evident for you, even though you should have learned some things from the obvious lessons from history, I will open my mouth. I will utter dark sayings of old parables. I will instruct you on the way. There's a persuasive invitation. Come, come, my people, give ear, listen to my instruction so that you find life, you will find wisdom. And from this invitation, we already learned that this is just the pattern of God. He always comes to us first with grace and mercy and shows us his lessons, his instructions. His gospel was presented to us. It is only if we, by stubbornness and rebellion, shut our, off our ears and shut off our eyes from him that he will come with judgment. But that's the first movement that he makes. That's how he approaches us. Give ear, O people of God. Hasn't that been his pattern since the garden? Even the covenant of works that God made with Adam. Wasn't this a gracious covenant as well? Just the fact that he could walk with God, interact with God, be with him. Yes, there was a test. But the the test was not meant for Adam's failure in the sense that God was cheering for Adam to fail. God created man. Even the creation itself is an act of grace. And that's how God comes to us time and time again in the garden and throughout history. He comes to us, first of all, saying, give ear, give ear, O my people. But then we have a very interesting thing here on on verse 2. That as we have verse 2 that says, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. There's a prophetic element here already in this verse. When you read this verse, does that ring a bell? Do you, are you reminded of something? Do you think about any other text in the Scriptures? Maybe in the New Testament. Maybe a text in the Gospels. A text in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 13. Let me turn to Matthew chapter 13 briefly with you. And if you have a Bible with you, please... Do look at Matthew chapter 13. That chapter is one of those chapters that is filled with parables. Filled with parables. Now, as we read the word parable in Hebrew in Psalm 78, let me comment this. The word parable there does not mean the parable as we are used to, the the, the literary genre, parable, a short story with a main purpose that is conveyed by that story. It's the same word that is translated actually as the title of the book of Proverbs. It's just a general word that means in Psalm 78. It means, I will teach you by comparison, by having a simile or something like some other thing. It's a general word for saying, I will teach you using poetic language of comparison, lessons of old. But very well, when we come here to Matthew chapter 13, we have many of the parables that the Lord Jesus Christ himself told in these parables, in the more strict sense of parables. And after the Lord Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, he teaches the parable of the sower. And then he, he explains the parable of the sower for his disciples in the beginning of the chapter. Then he teaches the, the parable of the wheat and the tares, and the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the leaven. And many of those parables about the kingdom of God are opened up in the new covenant. And we have then verse 34. Verse 34. 
All these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables. And without a parable, he did not speak to them. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet Asaph, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Brothers, as we look into the psalm, we see that Christ is anticipated to do what he has been doing all throughout. Since creation, he has been doing through his spirit. He has been revealing us time and time again things of old. And if you remember the way in which this text is used in the New Testament, or the, the very idea of Christ speaking in parables, what is the lesson that is drawn in the New Testament? What is the purpose for which Christ will speak in parables? So that some hear and some do not hear. Now I want to present to you that both as in Psalm 78 and also in Christ as he opened up his mouth in parables, the reason why we are sometimes very slow to understand the message of the Scriptures is not because it's deep, dark, difficult, poetic language. That's not the reason. Just as, as it was in the New Testament, it is here in the Old Testament, it has always been. Those things need to be uncovered because we are slow of heart. We are slow of heart to understand all that the prophets have said concerning Christ. Therefore, he needs to open up, beginning from Moses, all the things that have been said about him to us. And graciously, lovingly, God does that to us here in Psalm 78. And we already have another lesson for here. For us to learn here today, brothers, as the invitation of wisdom comes to us, we need to submit to this invitation humbly. Otherwise, we will not learn. There's only one way to respond to this invitation. And that is to say, Lord, I'm here. Teach me. Teach me. Open my understanding. Open my heart. And this is not a matter of having a, a degree in Hebrew poetry. It's not a matter of intellectual uh, uh, well, there's no intellectual barrier in understanding the basic message of the gospel. Yes, there are difficult things in Scripture. Even the Apostle Peter will admit that when he quotes uh, Paul, and when he mentions Paul in 2 Peter 3.16, he says, there are some difficult things about the Apostle Paul that the wicked and perverted man, they, they twist so that people are misguided. But the basic message of the gospel is very simple, very simple. And that same message that is taught here in Psalm 78, it's reverberated throughout the, the whole Bible. The main instruction is this, that God is merciful even though I am rebellious. Very simple. And then we come to our instruction. We have the invitation from verses 1 and 2, but we have the instruction. And the content of this instruction, I will... Expand a little bit more, even though the center of it is just a contrast between God's mercy and my rebellion, the rebellion of the people of God, and the faithfulness of God, of the covenant faithful God. The psalmist explains this using the language here from verses 3 to the first half of verse 5, saying, this is the lesson which we have heard and known. Our fathers have told us we will not hide from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord. His strength 
and his wonderful works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. So from the second part of verse 4 and the first part of, of verse 5, we have condensed here. That's a summary of the rest of the psalm, actually, which is the wonderful works and the strength of God, the testimony and the law that he has appointed in Israel. The way in which the psalmist will expand this throughout the rest of the psalm is by using those themes to, to show how God, revealing his covenant, revealing his wonderful works, revealing his strength, even though he was so gracious and merciful to reveal all of that, the people time and time again have rebelled. And God kept his word. That's why I say that the main message of the psalm is actually mercy. You will see throughout the, the rest of the psalm here in a moment. This trophic structure, if you could take some time then to read the psalm later, you see that there's a strophic structure. And just a little hint about Hebrew poetry, usually in poetry in modern languages, English as well, it's not too different. We do poetry by rhymes, right? We rhyme. The, the last word should rhyme with the last word of the next verse, and so on and so forth. But in Hebrew poetry, there's a lot of rhymes, if you may, of themes. There's parallelism, and a lot of those rhymes, they happen by saying a similar thing in a different way. Or something that contrasts with this previous thing, but it still revolves around the same theme. But if you study the psalm, you will see... I won't get too much into this, but you see that there are a lot of triads and tetrads that actually divide the psalm pretty neatly. It's very clear, the division of the psalm here. And you could argue that this psalm is actually constructed in such a way that it provides us with a chiasm. Chiasm from, that, uh, from the, the, letter, the Greek letter chi, or chi, however you prefer to pronounce it, like an X. It's the idea that you have a concentric idea surrounded by parallelism. So you have... A, B, B, A, for example. And there's a focus on the, on the middle. But not all chiasms are the same. And not all of those focus on the message in the middle. I actually think that this one focuses on the message that is around. And let me give you just an overview of the psalm here. And then we will read. We will read the psalm and just briefly. But you have this introductory call to listen to the word of God from verses 1 to 8. Verses 1 and 2, if you want to use a technical word. It's an exordium. It's a, it's a call to listen. It's an exhortation for you to listen. It's saying, hey, listen to this. And then you have the summary of the psalm from verses 3 to 8 with its contents and its purpose. But then from verses 9 through 72, you have a very interesting structure. And here you have a chiasm from verses 9 until the end of the psalm. There's a chiasm. There's a ABBA structure. Verses 9 through 16... The focus is on the rebellion of Ephraim, the kingdom of the north, represented by Ephraim. And then you have two cycles, or two retelling of, two, two ways in which the psalmist retells, tells again the same story. Two cycles of wilderness experiences, of stories about when the people of Israel were in the wilderness, and they failed God. The first cycle is from verse 17 through 39, and the second one from verses 40 until 64. And then you have, in the end, the promises to Judah, verses 68, 65 through 72, 
which we should sing by the end of the message. They, they t- talk to us with a glimpse of hope. Even though the people have failed time and time again, God remained faithful and he kept his promises to David. And he gave David to the people of God as a, an image of that faithful covenant had that would still come. The Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect one. The one who kept the covenant perfectly. And it is very interesting that there's this comparison between Ephraim and Judah. Because as non-Christians look at history, and many times they see history and they think history is cyclical. The same thing is happening again and again. The way in which the psalmist sees history here is not like that. It's linear, but not only it's a linear history, but it's a history that is controlled by the mighty hand of God. God controls from beginning to end, and he has a purpose. Facts are not random. Facts in history don't just happen by chance, but God has a purpose in every and each millisecond of history, in every character. And as we look to this organization of the psalm, it is very interesting that we observe that there is actually a five-fold pattern that repeats itself again and again in the psalm. If you also pay attention to the structure of the psalm, and if you read it attentively at home, you will see that there's a five-fold structure, a five-fold pattern. Again and again, you see from verses 9 through 72, there's forgetfulness. People forget God. And then, and then they, there's God redeeming them, saving them. There's God's provision. He provides for them in a particular way. But still, the people are ungrateful and rebellious, so God brings judgment. And after judgment, in spite of the persistent rebellions of the people of God, God is so faithful to his covenant, to his covenant promises, that he expresses love. So you'll find that again and again, forgetfulness, redemption, provision, judgment, love. Let us look at the psalm then and see this briefly as an overview of the psalm. As I walk with you through the psalm, I won't read necessarily all the verses, so please have your Bible open so that you, you can at least follow the main flow of the, of the argument here. From verses 9 through 11, you see forgetfulness, the people of Ephraim. Verses 9 through 11, even though the sons of Ephraim, they were well-equipped archers, they had bows, they were prepared for war. But what happens? They don't keep the covenant of God. They forget. They forget. They have forgotten his works. The wonders, the mighty works that God has done. And this was not a problem of amnesia. This is spiritual forgetfulness. It's not as if they they, they had lost their memory temporarily. It just means that that which they remembered had no value for them. They didn't care about what God had done in the past. Aren't we like that, brothers, time and time again? So slow to remember what the prophets have said of the Messiah. So slow to remember even God's particular providences in our lives. But then, God mercifully brings redemption. So you see this pattern from verses 12 through 14. God brings redemption. He delivers them from Egypt with a mighty hand. Another title for the psalm could be 
from Zoan to Zion, because verse 12 so says that they delivered them from the land of Zoan. He delivered them from the land of Zoan. And it's just something remarkable. I think you would remember if you had seen God making the sea like a cascade, making all the sea go up so that people would walk through dry land. I think you would remember that. So God gives them something to remember here. And he leads them with a cloud by day and fire by night. And God even gives them provision. They are in the desert. They don't have water. Okay, I'll give you water. God gives them water. Not just any kind of water, but water from the rock. Would you expect that? There's, that's an amazing provision. It's not any kind of provision. And then, even though God does that time and time again, they sin against God. Verse 17, they sin against God. And they persistently sin against God all the more. They're rebellious. They provoke God. How do they provoke God? Verse 18, they test God. And, and pay attention to this. It says they tested God in their heart. Tested God in their heart. You will see this here. I believe in the New King James translation, it's the same word. They tested God in their heart by asking for the food of their fancy. So the test that they have for God, it doesn't start with an action. It doesn't start with words spoken, but it starts in the heart. And then it overflows with them complaining. They had just been delivered with a mighty hand, with miracles all around them. Day and night they would see God's provision in the cloud and in the fire. But still they task God because they want food according to their fancy, their desires, their lust. And then God gets enraged. They say to God, can God set a, a table in the wilderness? can God do that? Can God give bread to his people? The Lord becomes enraged, verse 21, and fire is kindled against Jacob. And then you see that the anger that comes against Israel goes on. And there's a long section of judgment. And God will, will, will reprimand them. As the psalmist puts here on verse 25, they did eat the food of angels, but they were complaining. So God answered them in a particular way. This is another lesson for us. God answered them and said, You want bread? I will give you bread. Sometimes God answers us in prayer. In such a way that Him answering us according to what we have asked is a judgment for us. But then, even though they were rebellious, verse 34 when he slew them, then they sought him, and they returned and sought earnestly for God. Another translation says, when he was about to slay them. But either way, if it was the result of the judgment that already came, or that was about to come, it was clear for them that God was enraged. And God forgives them. And they remember that God is their rock. And you read that in verse 35. And you think that's a great thing. They remember. But then you read verse 36. Nevertheless, they flattered him with their mouth. That was a false repentance. God knows the difference between a true and false repentance. 
between words that come out of the mouth but are not flowing out of the heart and those that come from true contrition. And that false repentance does not stand because they don't really trust the covenant of God, verse 37. But then God, being full of compassion, verse 38, still forgave them and did not destroy them completely as they deserved, as all of us deserve. All of us have sinned. But then there's another cycle of wilderness rebellions that starts on verses 41 on. And they turn back and they test God again, the Holy One of Israel. They don't remember the work of the hands of God. They don't remember the signs that he has wrought in Egypt. And here we have quoted six or seven, depending how you count, six or seven of the wonders that God had done to, to the people of Israel, delivered them from Egypt. This is just a short sample, but there's much more. And in spite of their forgetfulness, God saves them. God saves them and shows his mighty hand in delivering them from Egypt. And again, I told you in the beginning, this is not a chronological account, but the author is showing how in different ways, in different ways, this pattern is recurring in the, people, in the history of the, the, the people of Israel. And if you remember, for example, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. There's a similar pattern there when God, from 1 to 3 actually, when God is, is sorry, when the Apostle Paul is setting his argument to say in the end that all men are accountable. All of us have sinned. And then the hammer of God's judgment comes again and again. It strikes men. And it's very similar to this. God has given them over to their own lusts, to their own desires, to what they prayed for even. God gives them over. And the second cycle here, similar to what you see in in Romans there, it's a cyclical way of deepening the problem. It's a second cycle that's saying, this is really serious. This is what really happens. And you see the same thing again. They forget from verses 41 to 40. Four, God redeems them from verses 45 until verses uh, around 50, 51, in which all of those signs, those wonders of Egypt are re- recounted. And God even provides for them. He drove his people like a flock, verse 52. He drove his people like a flock. He made them his own people to go forth like a sheep in the New King James translation, guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them safely so that they did not fear, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. He brought them to his holy border, to the mountain which his right hand had acquired. And this pattern of provision, and God walking among them, showing himself in, in theophanies, it's not enough for them. Yet, verse 56, yet they tested and provoked the God, the Most High God, and they did not keep His testimonies. All of those were testimonies of God's mighty hand. And they turned back, and they act in unfaithful ways like their fathers. They act deceitfully. They provoked Him with the high places. They start to commit idolatry. And when God hears this, He is furious. And he forsakes the tabernacle of Shiloh and the tent he placed among men. And then God shows an even greater mercy. Because you keep reading, and you read on verse 65, another 
manifestation of love. Then the Lord awoke us from sleep, like a mighty man who shouts because of wine, and he beat back his enemies, he put them to perpetual reproach. Moreover, and pay attention to verses 67 and 68, he rejected the tent of Joseph, and he did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, A, B. But he chose the tribe of Judah, B, Mount Zion, which he loved, A. That's another chiasm. And here the focus is indeed in this contrast. And I think that's a key to understand the whole psalm. That the whole history of, of redemption has a purpose. That God doesn't tell us historical facts just for fun. He's telling us that from beginning to end, he had a plan. He had a plan to show forth his glory. And first, he had the whole kingdom of Israel, but they failed. And then he keeps his seat going on through the kingdom of Judah. And we nowadays, as we read this as new covenant people, we know that the kingdom of Judah also failed. Those that would read this in the, the, the time of Asaph, in the time of David, they would be encouraged. God was merciful to us. He gave us David, a man after God's own heart. But give it some years. And we'll see precisely that which Pastor Adam has mentioned here. He was not the greatest parent. His kids, his generation after him, did not keep the covenant. And we read this as new covenant people. And the people of Israel would read this expecting another one to come. Another one to come that is predicted in the two types present here. The type of the sanctuary and the type of the pastor on on verses 69 and 70. He built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth which he established forever. He also chose David, his servant, took him from the sheepfolds, from following the ewes that had young. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his arts and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. And this is true. David did that to the best of his ability. But the best of David was still scandalous. Well, David himself, the one who was appointed to take care of, of the sheep, abused the sheep, killed another, plotted a, a whole plan so that all of his flock would be affected in that war, and many other sheep would die. But we as covenant people, we look into the history of Israel, and the same lesson that is told to them here, to look to God's promise, look to God's promises coming. We look at that and we rejoice because we can see the promise that has come. The promise that has come. Christ himself. Christ himself. The perfect Adam, the perfect Moses, the perfect David. The one who fulfilled the covenant of works in our place and became accursed in that cross. For my sake, for your sake. Isn't this supposed to make us really have at the same time a sense of soberness, but also a sense of praise? Isn't this the history about man's recurrent rebellion, but God's persistence, persistent mercy? Time and time again we see this. The sin of Israel is even absurd. But that's my sin. That's your sin. We have seen time and time again following the same pattern, but the love of God has prevailed over that. From this we are to be stirred up 
for a greater soberness and a greater fear of God so that we don't be like those people. But we are also to be stirred up for a greater praise. And this is part of the intent of the psalm that we see from the second half of verse 5b and 8. That's why it's important to have at least a glimpse of the whole message so that we understand verses 7 and 8. From verses 5 on we read, I will read from the beginning of verse 5. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children that, and there's a lot of those that's going on now, that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they may not, there's implied that there, that they may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, the generation that did not set its heart aright. And I want to bring a number of applications to us here, brothers, because if we really understand this history of redemption, that God had a plan from beginning to end, that he is the one who controls history, the greatness of his mercy, and the greatness of our rebellion, there are many things that we should be instructed on. First, the Lord calls us to personally obey, know and obey, and set our hearts within his covenant, set their hearts, our hearts are right in him. So there's a personal element from verses 5 to 8. There's this personal element. We ourselves, each one of us, have to have a covenant with God. It is not enough that your father has a covenant, or your mother, or your close family members, or your spouse. You need to be in covenant with God. And we know that the people of God in the Old Testament, all of those under, that we read about in Psalm 78, they had the sign of the covenant. They had the sign of the covenant, the external sign of the covenant. Still, they were rebellious. The covenant we have to make with God, yes, we have to follow His word and obey His commandments and be baptized as a sign of the covenant under the New Testament, but we need to be circumcised in our hearts. Otherwise, all of this is for nothing. All of the history of Israel that you might have learned in, in church is for nothing. All of the catechism that you might have memorized, it's for nothing. If you do not have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, if you do not make a personal covenant with him, you will not be able to teach others. You will not be the target of this great mercy of God. But you will be like one of those rebellious ones that have been spared just by God's amazing mercy, but that on the last day will suffer eternal punishment. So look at the greatness of God's mercy throughout history. How time and time again He has been faithful, He has been gracious, He has been even persistent with you. It's scandalous that He loves us, but He does. We are also to be exhorted to learn how avoid sin, even as covenant people of God, even as those that have been indeed been born again, that have the, 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 the heart circumcised, we are still tempted by sin. We are not under the dominion of sin, if you are a true believer, but you are still influenced by sin. And it is helpful for us to look at what happened in history and learn a few lessons. Let me give at least two briefly here. 
when you look at the pattern, this pattern, time and time again, of forgetfulness, redemption, provision, and judgment, and love, isn't this Paul's very argument in Romans that he says that some say that we sin more because by our sin, God's grace will abound. The scandalous love of God, which is unreasonable for us, should not be an excuse for us to sin. Should not be an excuse for us to sin. The love of God is amazing, brothers. Time and time again, as we look to the rebellion in the desert, and we compare to our own hearts, we see how absurd it is. It's mind-boggling that those people that have seen the miracles that have been done, time and time again, in front of their very eyes, they still rebel. But you do the same. I do the same. God has saved me with such a great mercy, such a great kindness, such a great love. And I still sin. Let this be an encouragement for you, but also a sobering message. The two at once, one does not exclude the other. Let, you be, let us be reminded that the greatness of God's mercy is no excuse for us to sin. But it actually, it should drive us to repentance. Romans 2.4, don't you acknowledge, Romans 2.4 says that, don't you acknowledge that the mercy of God is meant to lead you to repentance, or the goodness of God is meant to lead you to repentance. That's the purpose of retelling the history of Israel. It's not just so that we know facts, but that we remember we are not different than that people. It's not like we are looking at this history and saying, stupid Israelites. No, we are the ones that are scandalously sinful, and without the grace and the mercy of God, we will be there. But let us be encouraged. This mercy calls you Today, calls you today. There is no sin that can't be covered by the great mercy of God. If you have sinned and if you have been rebellious until today, time and time again, if you are struggling with sin, be encouraged. God's love can overcome that. Where sin abounded, grace overabounded. This was true for the Israelites. This is true for the new covenant people. It can be true personally for you. If you only come to Him, if you only give ear to His word as His People, his covenant people, his part of his sheepfold. But, well, there's a particular lesson as well for us in terms of instructing one another, which is usually when people preach from this text, they usually emphasize that aspect, which is true. We need to have this personal relationship with God so that, there are many so that, but if you want a a summary, so that we, we glorify him through the proclamation of his word. And there's a, such a strong covenantal element here. We are to teach one another in the context of our homes. He lists four generations. If you read attentively from verses 5 through 8, there's four generations mentioned there. It reminds us, for example, of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Let me read this text briefly here. I just want to show this to you, that this is not an Old Testament teaching only. And by the way, even if it was, it's still for us today. You know that. But just to clarify this, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. I'll read from verse 1. The Apostle Paul says to Timothy, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things that you have heard from among many witnesses, commit these to faithfulness. Com- sorry, commit this to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. 
This transmission throughout the generations is a commandment to all believers. To all believers. And what is the particular emphasis here in the psalm? Is that the pastor should teach the congregation? That's true, but that's not the emphasis of the psalm. Is that parents will teach their children. So as we are a covenant people, we can't see ourselves in this context as, as an individualist society. As you know, you have your thing with God, I have my thing with God. No, we are part of the covenant. If you are under the, the, the visible covenant of God, it is your duty and privilege to teach the word of God to one another. And brothers, how we fail in that? How we fail in that? I'm not a parent, but I know that I fail in that many times by word and by deed. But God is still merciful. The same mercy that came to you, that sought and found you in your sin, it's still available for you to help you in your sanctification, to help you teach others. Ask God for mercy. His loving kindness will guide you. His word will instruct you on the way on how to teach others. And briefly, as we we are almost in the end of this message, but I want to give an application for those of you who were brought under houses, under homes, in which you did not have this instruction. This psalm is also for you. If you grew up in a house in which your parents did not teach you the ways of God, this psalm is also for you. Again, you can't use this as an excuse, but use this as an encouragement. Even though my parents didn't teach me, the ways of God. I will do this now with my kids, with my children. Even if you were brought in a confessing family, but your parents were not really believers. Or maybe they were believers, but they taught you a lot of sin by example. You should not be like that generation. That's what the psalm says. You should not be like that generation. Still show respect to your parents and be loving and kind towards them. But the point is, there's no excuse for us. But there's a greater encouragement. And if you have been brought under a covenant, a faithful covenant house, you should rejoice. That's a great privilege, brothers. I wish, I wish I was brought in a house in which I was learning the word of God day after day. In which I would be singing psalms. In which I would be talking about spiritual things with my parents. Don't get me wrong, I love my parents. I love them. But... That's not what happened. They were not believers. I was the first believer in my house. And still nowadays, I pray for, for, for my, my father's conversion. But just as this, there's no excuse for me to not teach my kids when I have kids on the way. There's no excuse for you. But there's a great, great, amazing privilege in being brought forth in a godly context. Praise God for this. Praise God for this, you children. Praise God for this. Your parents are not perfect. Yes, they have many sins, but many of you that were brought in a Christian context, honestly, you don't really know what's bad parenting. You don't really know. I don't know that much either, but it's a great privilege. Praise the Lord for this. And brothers, as we come to the end of this message, I want to remind you of God's invitation, God's instruction, and God's intent. God calls you, brothers, give ear to the instruction of the Word of God. What is this instruction? Basically that he is merciful even though we are rebellious. And we are to listen to give ear to this. So that we are not like those that have rebelled in the wilderness. But so that we remain faithful by his grace 
We are encouraged by this mercy to keep going. So I bring back the question I, I had in the beginning. Can we learn from history? Hegel said the only thing we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. But Psalm 78 says otherwise. God's lesson from history today for us stands. God's lesson is that despite our rebellion, He is gracious and merciful. Learn this lesson, brothers. Ask God to teach you in the heart. Amen.